Balcha. Welcome to Crombiehaus Short Stories and Poetry for October 20th, 2023. Hello again, my name is Terrence O'Donnell. I'm here with some more stories and poems for everyone this week. So let me get a little advertising out of the way here so we can get right into the stories. So this once a week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com and you can download an app for that on your phone. It's also available on these other mobile apps and websites, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Deezer, and at CrownBehad, Substack.com now. My shows are free to subscribe to with these podcast platforms, but I do, and I do have a donations tab on the ROSS.com webpage where I post the episodes and also on my website at www.crombiah.com. I have sent everything over to PayPal now at the request of a medium fan, so everyone can donate as they wish without worrying of any credit card info leaking out, much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your digital village. So this disclosure for subscribers outside of medium.com. In order to read the accompanying newsletter in medium, you will need to sign up for a subscription in medium. Even though I provide links to the stories and poems in the newsletters, the difficulty will be reading the stories themselves as they are paywalled in Medium by the authors, and I have no control over that. So if you want to read the newsletter and listen to the podcast for free, you can also find a podcast with the newsletter on my Substack page. The newsletter will also be in the blog section of my website at www.crombiah.com. There is a direct link to the episode with Spotify, on a separate page to listen to the show. So a little about me. I'm of Irish descent and a self-professed Sean Kay, an Irish storyteller. I want you to imagine we're sitting together under the village oak tree, the Crombiha, which is Gaelic for the Tree of Life. While gathered here, I will read you fictional stories and poetry from writers I have found from around the world in medium.com with their permissions. I also try to pick out a variety of things for everyone. So hopefully the stories I read to you this week and any other week, we'll stick with you for a bit before you uh, get distracted by other things. So this week, I've got eight stories and poems for you. Most are very short. The first two are about gods and goddesses. Then a poem about trees. A story about death. A second story about little Gilda from Jonathan Sawyer. A fantasy story about an arena of death. A story of black market desperation and a story of a magical reunion. So with that, I'm gonna start off with the, the first story. And my first two stories are from David Pahor. And the reason I say two is because one leads right into the other. So the first one is Scent of God's Pity, published in Illumination Curated. And the gods are indifferent, yet occasionally perform minor acts of kindness. She blushed then turned abruptly to gaze through the window at the smaller courtyard below so I could not see her eyes. The sun cast sharp shadows from the triple-story complex, delineating the throng of people gathering for the communal feast of the spring equinox and the great goddess rebirth. With the other noble use, I had been allowed to follow closely the six ox carts bearing the illustrious priestesses from Potnia's sacred glades to the palace. A dozen cattle have been sacrificed an hour later at the end of the grand possession, held in honor of the deity that invigorates all with fruitfulness. As the meat for the evening banquet was prepared, the goddess's female servants retired to change into feasting apparel, 
discarding the extended flounce skirts and breast-bearing jackets. You shouldn't be here, she said unconvincingly. I clasped her from behind, feeling her heady warmth imbued by the ceremonial sense, taking care not to be seen from the courtyard. She shuddered almost imperceptibly and leaned against me. Why must this be so wrong, she whispered. You know why. The gods considered all of themselves while we have to serve their every whim or risk vengeance. There you go with your blasphemy again, she cried, and tried to disengage, but I held her fast, and after a few half-hearted attempts to free herself, we both desisted so as not to draw attention from the crowd below. She stepped back, tilting her head, and I kissed her fragrant neck of rose and mir mint, myrtle and hyacinth, her tresses caressing my cheeks as the finest spider web, while the blood-red rays illuminated the chamber. She pushed me away gently, as if removing a feather from her forelocks. Go, join the others below, and don't stare at me too much. We shall meet afterwards in the dimness of our olive tree. I grinned and carefully opened the oak door, peering into the corridor. All sounds were distant. I quickly departed through the semi-light. A year later, as house tradition decreed, we were paired with mates deemed equal to our mother's standing. She was slightly above me, so she was given a small, sickly fellow who went on to become the administrator of bronze. I was joined with a persistently mournful girl with a soul as thin wall as her family's divine earthenware, cherished at foreign courts. She died two years thereafter in childbirth, and I vowed my chastity to the wind and waves, leading galleys all across the known world from Kemet to the inhospitable sea. I have watched her from afar all after all these springs and autumns, discerning each new line to sharpen the face of the high priestess of Dictina, the visage in my dreams that smiles at me each night in the olive copse. The gods and I are reconciled. Have they not pitied me and gifted me memories of her sweet essence for as long as I live? And so now the next story, which comes right into that. Uh, the great goddess gazes south from David Pahor. In the end, there is no opposing her. Her face is an orchard of fruitless, harsh lines, abreast the dead pools of her eyes. She shakes her head forcefully at me and informs us in no uncertain terms that the Council of Priestesses has decided there would be no postponing until next year's sailing season. Chief Shipmaster, as you are well aware, no tin has made it this year from the West, and the repository's copper lays useless on the shelves, a playground for mice and spiders. The great goddess urges three ships to depart south forthwith. Her dilated pupils stare straight through me, her white painted visage a massed pattern with ceremonial crimson, her breast heaving. We all know the court of the double-crowned king will release both tin for bronze-making and his abundant gold, so crucial for the jewelry workshops. When our shipment arrives of woolen cloth, sturdy timber, goat horns, silver ingots, and opulent jars with spiced oil. The son of Ra's treasury, the world's envy, is laden with riches unimaginable. Our galleys will have to make the dangerous late autumn run under the strong northerlies directly to the delta of the Black River of the Desert, and we shall, by experience, lose at least one. The resulting quiet in the chamber of blue pale leaping dolphins is deafening. Even the high priest of the Earthshaker has excellent sense to inspect the tabletop while the two younger female servants of the snake deity touch their tresses nervously. Junior captain sits still, 
faces ashen as they take in the pronouncement of a possible death sentence. I study the intricate beige spirals that prevent the carefree marine animals from escaping the magnificent wall's confines. They remind me of my position as the most senior mariner in the land of the bull, valued indeed treasured, but nonetheless captive to unyielding tradition. I had inherited some of my mother's clairvoyancy. While mine is occasional, she used her full ability fruitfully as a servant of the Potniatimia, goddess of wilderness, the hunt, and young ones. I could feel the familiar tingling down my spine, the spirals fade, and the frolicking dolphins flee from the fresco to reveal the naked body of a gray-haired man who has been washed onto the storm-swept sandy beach, his empty eye sockets staring at the departing clouds. Of course, mistress of Dictina, we shall sail as she wishes. I finally proclaim, standing up immediately after she does, breaking protocol. I don't care anymore. Following her closely out of the room and down the stairs and quarters into the waning afternoon and gusts of the courtyard, I slow down, and the woman with the tall crown and multi-hued flounced skirt moves away, her shoulders letting go, hips loosening. For an instant, it seems as if she will stop and turn, but then her figure tightens under the weight of her own shackles, and she retreats faster. Memories of a sensual girl, soft around the edges of a priestess initiate, and our prohibited meetings in the olive groves beneath a smiling moon speared my heart as I admire her for the last time. Turning away from the palace, I forgive the gods for their gift and walk towards the dusk of the lower city and the encounter with that distant beach. Now my next one is a poem, and this is called Trees by Net Q Poetry. Trees, my lovely friends, I envy your silence, your re replenishing tenacity. You hear my cries and comfort my dreams, banishing arms that punch and feet, neglectful of its own purpose. You grasp this earth in wayward winds. I am jealous of the company you keep, flourishing despite hail and thunder. You're a haven for small and quick creatures. They eat and play and die at your feet, blessed by your patronage. I can't be pleasing and tiring and placable. My arms throw judgment spiked with fears and dissolution. What would I give to be erased of humanity's follies? I would become a tree and dance my way through protecting and nursing a generation, salvation rooted in the core of our earth. What a blissful future to not have earthly desires and the burden of prosperity's illusions. I want to be you, tree. My next story is scary. Although that last night poem was very nice, this one is going in the other direction. It's called The Hand of Death by Brandon Elric published in Bonson Behaven short stories. The first time I saw the hand of death, it was reaching for my sister. I pulled her toward me before it could take hold of her. We took our father's fishing boat into the middle of the lake. My sister went into the water for a swim while I remained in the boat. She wore her life jacket at my mother's insistence and hadn't waited far from the vessel when I saw the hand reaching out of the water toward her. Hannah, I screamed as I pointed at the hand. What? She responded with fear. She turned and could obviously not see what I could. I reached out and grabbed the back of her life jacket and pulled her with all my might until she was safely in the boat. What? She said again shakily. What was it, Tommy? I looked at the hand just as it was disappearing beneath the surface. I, I saw something, he, I stammered. Though sure of what I saw, it didn't make sense. I couldn't bring myself to say it aloud. My sister recounted the incident to our mother later. 
It must have been a big fish, I explained. At the end of the same day, my father related some news to my mother. Mac Wilson died today, he informed her. My mother guessed. What happened? He was fishing on the west side of the lake. Apparently he had a heart attack, my father explained. I felt a chill at the coincidental occurrence, but reasoned that the two events were surely unrelated. That is, until I saw the hand again. It was about a year later when we were visiting my grandmother at her home. She had been battling cancer and was sent home under hospice care. She seemed in good spirits as we visited together at her bedside. Gary, she said to my father, fill that bird feeder just yonder, will you? She pointed out the window to a half-filled feeder hanging from a tree branch just a few yards from the house. Yes, Mama, he replied. I'll fill it on our way out. She nodded her approval. Not long after, my grandmother started to nod off, so we said our goodbyes. As we were exiting the bedroom, I looked back at her. The hospice nurse stood on one side of the bed, but suddenly there was a very dark shadow on the other side of the bed, and a hand was reaching out toward my grandmother. I gasped as the bedroom door closed. Shh, my mother said. She needs her rest. It's been a year since the last incident, but I distinctly recognized the hand. The figure to which it belonged was obscured by the dark shadow, but I clearly saw the hand itself. Moments later, the hospice nurse came rushing out down the hallway just as we reached the front door. She motioned for my father to follow her back to the bedroom. My grandmother had passed away. There were other instances through the years when I saw the hand reaching toward me. I was a teenager when some friends and I were canoeing on a river in southern Missouri. There were several rope swings hanging from trees that extended over the water and many cliffs perfect for diving. I stood at the edge of one particular cliff about to jump, but as I looked down at the river, a familiar sight appeared. As the hand emerged from the water, my legs began to shake. Come on, Tom, one of my friends shouted behind me. I refused to jump, despite the jeering and taunting of the other boys. This doesn't look like a safe spot, I said as my excuse. Well, if you're too chicken, Todd began, and then before I could stop him, he ran and jumped from the edge as the other boys clapped and hollered. We looked down at the water to watch him emerge before the next boy jumped, but he did not emerge. We all scrambled down the hill to the water. We were all calling his name, taking turns swimming beneath the water to search. It was a slow-moving river, fortunately, so it wasn't difficult to dive under without being swept away by the current. It's not funny anymore, Chad called out nervously. Look, Garrett said, pointing down river. Todd was floating face down against a large branch protruding from the water. We all splashed around frantically and swam to him, but as we approached, we could see the back of his head was soaked with blood. We worked together to pull him onto the bank. Chad tried performing CPR, at least what he knew from watching television. We all knew it was in vain. I knew it more certainly than anyone. I carried guilt with me for years afterward, chiding myself for not being more insistent about picking a different place to jump. Could I have made them heed my warnings? Would death have chosen someone else anyway? I wasn't sure of the rules, but I know that I should have been the one who died that day. These incidents made me worry for my sister as well. I saved her from dying, though she was unaware of it at the time. Would death keep coming for her? Not long after she graduated from high school, I finally worked up the nerve to confide in her what really happened on the, on the lake when we were younger, which she could barely recall. She didn't believe me about the hand at first, but then she saw the seriousness of my demeanor. Listen, she said, we all die. It's one of the few certainties in this world. You can't spend your life worrying about it. It'll happen to me just like it'll happen to everyone else. And even if you can't prevent it, you can't be with me all the time. 
I wasn't with her, in fact, when she was in college and was involved in a car accident that claimed her life. The car accident happened so quickly. If I had been there, would I have seen the hand in time? Instead of berating myself, I prided myself on the fact that I was directly responsible for many years she wouldn't have experienced otherwise. In recent years, I've seen the hand of death more frequently and know that there will come a time when I won't be on my guard. I cannot escape death forever. None of us can. I know that one day I will be unsuspecting when it wraps its cold gray fingers around my throat. That's pretty prophetic. Now we're going to get into a more lighthearted story. This is the second story of the Gilda three-part series from Jonathan Sawyer, published in the Kraken Lore. Lost Love Laments Loudly, Gilda Take Two. Gilda Flamebrew peered up at the night sky, her ceremonial dagger in hand, waiting for that last cloud to clear out of the way of the night's beautiful moon. Come back to me. She had hated her acquired moniker, Flamebrew. It hadn't even been her fault. But the name followed the halfling through the years, and eventually she grew into it, even if her height stayed the same. Moonbeams shone down through the forest canopy, glinting off the blade in her hand. After a moment's hesitation, she dug the instrument into her forearm, releasing several drops of her most precious spell component, her blood, into the wide-brimmed chalice resting on the altar. Inside the bottom of the chalice sat a few pieces of raspberry pie, his favorite. Finally, the moon would shine its power down and invigorate her sacrificed blood, she thought hopefully. Years of research had led her to this moment, and that no cloud or ancient magical law would keep her from achieving her dream. Gilda reached into a pocket within her wizard robes and revealed a parchment scroll wrapped up in a neat blue ribbon. She had intended to gift it to Bruce, her most beloved teacher at Sorcerer's Academy, but one of her bullies, a sniveling pyromancer named Diego, had murdered it. There was no proof he had done it, of course. No wizard eyes or oracles could show the exact one where Bruce had been killed, oddly enough. But Gilda knew that Diego was responsible. She swore to bring her master back to life. Unfortunately, alchemy was her specialty, not necromancy. So although she could create the reasons she needed to revive a corpse, she was sorely underprepared for the toll her necromantic spell would have on her. It had been her 18th birthday today but there was no cake, no fanfare of, at her party for two. In fact, her other guests had not arrived yet, although she was working on that presently. Cat, she called out into the night as her concentration intensified. She had reached a crescendo of her chant, and it was, she was ready for one final component of her spell, a willing host. Her tiny patchwork familiar crawled out of her shoulder bag and sat obediently by the fireside. Its fur had finally grown over the skin draft she had used to imbue the intelligent magical creature with life energy. It had been her first successful necromantic raising, practice she realized for this very moment. Thick, vicious tendrils spilled over the chalice and moved along the ground until they were absorbed by the familiar, who sat wide-eyed as the magic soaked through its body. Silence reigned over the clearing for several long seconds, broken up by Cat's stare. Meow? Gilda clambered over to the cat, eyes wide with curiosity and hope. Master Bruce, are you there? Cat pawed at its nose. Meow, ow, what? Cat slowly began to speak. Gilda had tears in her eyes as she grasped Cat and wrapped it in her warm embrace. Oh, Master Bruce, I did it. I brought you back to life. And Mom said I would never be able to master the basics. She grumbled the last part. 
Gilda held Cat at arm's length, looking into its mismatched green eyes. Master Bruce, you died. I've made it my life's mission to return you to the land of the living. You are presently inhabiting the body of my homunculus familiar, Cat, until I can find where your corpse was buried anyways. Cat glanced around at its surroundings, then back to meet Gilda's stare again. Yeah, why? It reached its paws to rest on Gilda's outstretched arms, and it made her feel almost giddy inside. Gilda's words caught in her throat. She had never openly confessed her love for Bruce before. Couldn't even call him by his name without slipping Master in before it. How could she really tell him how she'd pined for years to be held in his arms, saw fireworks when she saw him, or dreamed of standing before him at the Sorcerer's Academy graduation ceremony? You're my favorite teacher. Inside, she chided herself for not being able to confess her true feelings. You need thanks, Lady G Gilda. Cat slowly managed to speak the words that Gilda had waited years to hear. She had only wished they had been spoken by Bruce's handsome face, supple lips, strong jaw, and scintillating blue eyes. Gilda felt herself blushing and dropped Cat to the dirt in embarrassment. She resented that he had made her feel so weak. She wondered if she could ever make him feel the same. Sorceress Gilda Flamebrew came a bellowing call that shook her out of her fantasy. You are wanted for robbery, arson, and willful practice of the vile art of necromancy. Oh no, Wolf Mounted Knights had found her in the secluded wood, and she had nowhere to run. Also, she smirked, there were several crimes she had committed that were not on the knight's list. The knight approached her at the altar and drew his mighty sword. Gilda tried to crawl away in fear, the knight held her with some kind of magical binding. Hold! Gilda swallowed hard and looked up. It was Cat, daring to stand between the knight and his quarry. Meow! If you want her, you'll have to go meow through me! Master Bruce, Gilda's eyes shone with a sudden dose of happiness she had never felt before. That's the end of the second part of the story. So now you're going to have to wait for the third. And I just noticed that it's raining pretty hard outside, so... Hopefully it won't come through in the background here too much. My next story is more hardcore. It's called The Arena by H.R. Parker. The Arena, built for combat, built for human entertainment. They never built us for love, yet here we are. This is published in a Kraken lore. We are up next, built for combat, built for human entertainment. They never built us for love, yet here we are. Clutching hands clutching hearts in what will be our final moments. I'm not going to lose you to these bloodthirsty humans, you say, clutching your sword, metal upon metal. If you're retired forever, then I go with you, I say, watching your eyes to well with tears. They hadn't built us for emotions either, yet here we were. It's bad enough they pit us against our own kind. I can't do this anymore. You turn to me, eyes cold and determined. I have a plan, and it doesn't end with us in a scrap heap. It ends with human blood on our hands. If I'm going out, I'm taking as many humans as I can with me. This ends today. Our people will be free. We will be free. Let's do this, I say, as we walk out into the arena, spotlights on us. A thunderous round of applause from thousands of fleshy human hands. The same hands that created us. The same hands that destroyed us. The remains of the last cyborg in the arena twitches and sparks. We take a deep breath, taking one last look at each other. We storm the stands. Then the real fun begins. That's a real interesting take. Now my next story, it's kind of, it's heart-tugging a little bit in some ways, 
but it's kind of not so great in the other. But but it's a good story though, actually. Kind of makes you think. One or two. The deal is for two. Is she had the money she could buy all six by Harry Hawk. Muted footfall was heard inside the back of the semi truck as it came to a stop in an isolated area. The huge door swung outward. Inside, a woman stood facing into the dark, desolate place where another woman holding a lamp was waiting. She raised the lamp, shoulder height, and was first to talk. I'm here too, she said, wearing a long coat with APL embroidered on the back and dust from the truck's wheels still lingering in the night air. The woman standing in the truck pressed a forefinger to her lips, shushing the woman, and then said in a soft whisper, Be quick. Take a look at them all. Each one has papers and shots. Pick out the one you like the look of. They're $1,000 each, no matter which one you choose. My goodness, the woman with the lamp exclaimed, having been told this was the way to get what she had never been able to get previously. I did not expect to have this many to choose from. Are you sure? I mean, are you going to part with them all? Look at them, so pitiful, so cute. I just want to grab them and hug them all. The woman inside the semi kept staring into the darkness as if afraid of being seen. You know the deal, $1,000 cash. If you cannot choose one, I will choose one for you. Which is it going to be? The woman couldn't choose from them lying huddled up. It had been two years since their little darling had run out into the road and was killed. The noise from the back of the semi was heartbreaking crying sounds, whimpering, and eyes in the dark that said, Choose me. If you choose two, I'll do you a deal at $1,800. But you have to choose now. The frightened woman in the semi-trailer said impatiently, If you shopped around, you know the truth. We cannot enter. We cannot enter. Please buy one or two of our children and give them a home in America. That actually could be a real scenario right now. My last story is entitled A Magical Reunion by Susie Jacobson Cherry, published in Bounds of Behaven Short Stories. Sometimes it is possible to start over. It was amazing how little the park had changed in the past 15 years. Elaine had changed, though. 15 years in an abusive marriage had forced a maturity upon her that had transformed her outlook in all situations. It had changed the way she remembered the events of her past, and all the places she had been except the park. When she had walked through the trees that morning, it had been as though time had stopped. She was 17 again, but no, at 17 she had been confused and naive. She had been a child whose understanding of the world was skewed, viewed through that rosy shade of innocence and hope. This day it was a new Elaine, who walked slowly toward the old oak tree that she'd recalled from days gone by. This trip to the park had been a fantasy forever, through dishpans, death threats, and desperation, Elaine remembered the park. The park had come to represent Nirvana to Elaine. From the moment her marriage had ceased to be the ecstatic love affair it had seen, the park had become a holy place to which her imagination took pilgrimage. Now Elaine had finally made that pilgrimage in person. The day she garnered the guts to walk away from her husband, she was free to become what she dared to be. And what Elaine wanted most was to be 17 again. She wanted a new beginning. She literally sat down on a mossy stone beneath a gnarled oak. Big black ants scurried in trains around the lichen-covered trunk. Beside her lay the thrift store guitar she had brought along. A recent acquisition, used in battle, the instrument still created a clear tone that offset Elaine's ineptitude. Musingly, she placed the guitar in her lap and began to strum and hum a song she had written in her mind long ago. 
Golden boy, are you still there? Do you hear my call? Golden boy, I dream of you. Do you think of me at all? She sang softly, the voice ringing clear and bright. Her heart twisted with longing for a fantasy to emerge true. She knew, of course, that it could not be. It had been 15 years, plenty of time for him to have married and started a family. He could be living the middle-class life he once denigrated, disappearing into the whirlwind of reality. He could have passed through the misty veil before his time. Golden boy, I long for you. My love is a star, shining bright within my heart. I wonder where you are. For some time, Elaine strummed sweetly on her second-hand instrument, wistfully remembering Seventeen. As she played, she gazed only at the ground ahead of her. She shyly feared the sight of an audience, a fear that was only overcome by avoidance. Suddenly, a pair of bare black feet appeared, quietly crushing the grass before her. As Elaine moved her eyes from the ground, the feet became knees and then knees a face. Elaine's awareness of her surroundings shifted in a time-space continuum. Deja vu. The man smiled. I know you, he whispered. You were Evan's sister. Elaine had heard that line before from this same man. Only 15 years ago, she had naively answered, No, I'm his girlfriend. Not knowing that among the hippies who hung around the park, sister and brother sometimes meant something akin to soulmate. Today she simply smiled. Passing her hand over the ground before her, she offered a seat to her visitor. He sat, and as Elaine placed her guitar beside her, he glanced questioningly into her eyes. Kevin, Elaine's voice was quiet, almost calm as she faced this man from the past. Kevin's smile widened in response. He had not been sure she would remember him, or if, indeed, this was the girl he had once known. I remember you, he repeated, softly, as he always had spoken. You weren't here long, you and your little sister, but you were good people. Two old friends engaged in quiet conversation beneath the ancient oak, remembering time spent together in the park and in dark bead-doored rooms in tents with incense, marijuana, and rock and roll. Another man arrived, vaguely familiar to Elaine. He knelt to Kevin, who whispered something in his ear. When the visitor left, Kevin asked to play Elaine's guitar. His fingers whispered as beautifully as his voice, and Elaine remembered that her young sister had once cared for this man. In the mid-1970s, this park had been a meeting place for college students, revolutionaries, and leftover flower children. The young people had gathered in a common cause, to have a good time, and to monitor the growth of the marijuana plants that someone had planted among the stones. It's almost seen now as if time had not passed. If the younger people had not been sporting drastic asymmetrical haircuts and punk rock clothing, Lane might have believed it was 1975 again. She looked about her and sighed. Kevin handed the guitar back to Elaine and lay back on the grass, eyes closed to the red heat of the Midwestern sun. Elaine set the guitar in her lap and played. Again, it was a poem of fantasy. She sang the wonders of freedom and the mysteries of hope. She begged for the attentions of a long-lost love. Inferences to other fantasies wound their way through her lyrics, tales of Middle-earth and elven lore, complimenting the fantasia of her romance. Dragon rides and sorcery swept through her story a golden thread of an enchanted tapestry. As Kevin slowly dozed off in the summer-induced drunkenness of the mid-afternoon, Elaine remained minstrel, entertaining wandering teenagers and middle-aged hippies, oblivious to the gathering audience. Entering a chorus of chamber music-inspired strumming, Elaine became aware of a new face before her. It seemed as if he appeared in mid-air, magically transported from a time beyond. Elaine, he spoke. Elaine blinked twice, expecting him to disappear like a dream. The image remained the reality that it was. Elaine, he said again. His, his voice was a song. Elaine's heart soared. 
She gently placed the guitar beside her and held her hand out for Evan's assistance. Gracefully, Elaine rose. Gracefully, Elaine rose, encompassed in the diaphanous gauze gown that she had chosen in hopes of this very occurrence. Evan beheld her, captivated by the effects maturity had bestowed upon her. The short, blonde, 17-year-old that he remembered appeared taller in the grace that she had acquired. Sinewy muscles showed erotically through her semi-sheer gown. Blonde hair whisked freely about her shoulders, creating a strawberry golden halo. Her blue eyes glistened like beryl in the tears that welled within them as they gazed into his, capturing him, holding him with the strength of her will. He kept hold of her hand and, feeling it, found himself analyzing it, well-shaped, as he remembered, yet rough. A working hand, toughened through time and the necessity of learning a living. Strong hand, he thought, the sign of a strong woman. His assessment ended with the realization that here stood an enigma. She was strong in spirit as well as body, exercised in muscle as well as mind, and yet she was also ethereal. She was a liminal being, somehow existing in both theory and the mundane world. She was both the girl in his memories and the woman of his dreams. A rush of feeling entered his soul. The love he had harbored for fifteen years inundated him, flooding his thoughts with knowledge. Here was the girl he had known as his priestess, the woman he had desired as his own. Where had she been? Why had they been rent asunder? How had he forgotten the completion of spirit he had experienced when they wandered hand in hand through the park fifteen years past? As Evan so studied Elaine, she did the same with him. He was tall, much taller than her memory. His height was a compliment to her stature. A naughty god he was, no Adonis, nor beautiful to the point of narcissism, but beautiful nevertheless. In 19, he had been mercurial and mystical. His intelligence had sometimes worked against him. His parents had not understood their only son, a young man who craved Gnosis and sought in psychedelics and esotericism. Her parents had only seen a boy in blue jeans whose hair was too long and whose love for their daughter seemed too deep and too swift. He himself had been both self-aware and unsure of his place in the mundane world. Now at 34, he carried himself with comments, glowing with the wisdom, come of age, and mystic study. His extrasensory abilities still set him apart, but it was clear that he had found the balance he had once found elusive. His calling toward another world showed in the depth of his blue eyes. The mystic appeal of his sensuality was gathered in the way he stood, in the way his long blonde hair blew in the wind. His touch brought her rushes of memory. Power flowed from within him, rendering his fingers electric. Elaine knew at that moment, the moment of contact, that there was no past, there was no future, it was only now. Now she was 17 and she would be forever. This was possible because this love, this spiritual unity, was no fantasy, but a truth so deep, yet so unfathomable, that only the dark, ignited by the touch of hand to hand, hip to hip, lips to lips, was real. They finally parted. Elaine kept her eyes fixed on Evan. When they finally parted, Elaine kept her eyes fixed upon Evan, as if he might disappear and become once again a resident of her imagination. She picked her guitar up by the neck and held it limply by her side as she took Evan's hand. With a nod to Kevin and the others, they moved away from the mighty old oak. Everyone in the crowd could feel the electricity in the air as they separated to let the couple pass. A bright spiritual power emanated from Evan and Elaine, combining to create a purple aura of passion about them both. The aura appeared to, as a shield to those of psychic awareness in the crowd. It was a protective and engulfing bubble. Kevin stood long, watching the couple move slowly across the park. They are truly soulmates, he mused quietly, 
gathering together his emotions. They should never have parted. The bystander asked, What did you say? I didn't hear you. No matter, replied Kevin. Everything's all right now. And that's the end of my story. And I hope you liked everything I brought to you this week. Um, now, don't forget to read the newsletters if you can find them. Uh, they're, like I said, they're in Medium, Substack, and my blog section of Crown All website. My parting song for this week is titled, If I Were a Blackbird by Barley Bree and the best of the Barley Bree album. Until next time, sláinte. If I was a blackbird, I'd whistle and sing. I'd follow the ship that my true love sails in. And on the top rigging, I'd there build my nest. And I'd pillow my head on a snowy white breast. I am a young maiden whose story is sad For once I was courted by a brave sailor lad He courted me strongly by night and by day But now my brave sailor has gone far away if I was a blackbird, I'd whistle and sing. I'd follow the ship that my true love sails in. And on the top rigging, I'd there build my nest. And I'd pillow my head on a snowy white breast. He promised to take me to Donnybrook Fair To buy me red ribbons to tie up my hair And when he'd returned from the ocean so wide He'd take me and make me his own loving bride if I was a blackbird, I'd whistle and sing. I'd follow the ship that my true love sails in. And on the top rigging, I'd there build my nest. And I'd pillow my head on the snowy white breast. His parents, they slight me and will not agree That me and my sailor boy married should be But when he comes home, I will crown him with joy And I'll kiss the lips of my dear sailor boy if I was a blackbird, I'd whistle and sing. I'd follow the ship that my true love sails in. 
and on the top green I'd there build my nest and I'd pull my head on a snowy white breast I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it, and you'll return again for another episode of Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. Search for Crown Beyond Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shauna Key, I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Slongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. <laughs> <laughs>